Are you familiar with Charles McKinley? He had his uh, five minutes of fame about 15 years ago. Charles was living in New Jersey, and he wanted to see, uh, just kind of make a surprise visit and see his parents in Dallas, Texas. And so um, Charles just had one problem. He didn't really have enough money for a plane ticket to get to Dallas, and so he decided that he would use an unconventional method to try to get there. He contacted a courier and arranged for this crate to be shipped from his business to his parents' doorstep there in Dallas, and he was just going to have his business pay for the whole thing. So he did. He, he called the courier. He set up a time, and the courier comes over, and right before the courier gets there, Charles hops into the crate, and he's transported from the crate over to the airfield, and he was flown all the way to Dallas, Texas, and dropped off right at his parents' doorstep, much to their surprise when the delivery man dropped off the crate, and then Charles popped up, popped out. The parents were surprised. The delivery man was surprised, but he made it. He was actually kind of quite fortunate when you think about it. He, he could have, uh, if they would have been kind of rough with the packaging or something, he could have had a concussion, broken some arm, broken an arm or a leg or something like that. He, uh, he went without food and water for 15 hours. I mean, if, if it would have got uh, delayed or held up or something, it could have been much longer. And also, the crate was put in the upper chamber of the aircraft where it's pressurized. If it would have been put in the lower chamber where it wasn't pressurized, well, he could have died. I mean, it, it could have cost him everything. It did cost him something. He was fined $1,500 and put on probation. Um, he could have bought a round-trip first-class ticket in those days for about $500 from New Jersey to, to Dallas, but he made it. Um, he just wanted to be with his parents. He knew there would be a seat at the table if he could get there. And when we get to Romans 11, we see that there's a seat at the table for all of us. But there's only one way to get to the table. It's only through Jesus. So Paul writes in Romans 11, verses 11 through 24. Romans 11, verses 11 through 24. And we'll continue our series on being more of a neighbor. And... Your bulletin again this week, it has that tic-tac-toe board just to remind you, if you haven't been with us in the middle, we want you to put your family, everyone who lives in your house, you're in the center square. And then on the outside, uh, the eight people who live closest to you, okay, your eight closest neighbors. If you know their names, write their names. If you don't know their names, you just leave it blank, and that's kind of like a challenge. Okay, let me see if I can get to know my neighbors. And then underneath their name... You're just kind of putting, okay, do I know something about them? Have I, ever, have I had a conversation with them and have I learned something about them? And then below that, have you ever eaten with them and shared Jesus with them? And so that's kind of the challenge. And we have that challenge because as we look, we realize, hey, if we want to be a good neighbor, it probably involves knowing their names. It probably involves uh, knowing some stuff about them. probably involves having a meal with them and sharing Jesus with them, because Jesus just comes out. It's who we are. So, as we think about that this morning, let's go ahead and read Romans 11, verses 11 through 24. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. 
Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? You know, it's difficult to jump right into Romans 11 and just start preaching Because Romans 11 is preceded by Romans 10, which kind of falls out of Romans 9, and you just kind of trace it back because Paul, he just has this thought going. He's just continually building on what it is that he's saying. And you need to remember, Paul has never been to Rome. Okay, he, he's dreamt of going to Rome. He wants to, to go to Rome and be able to share the gospel in Rome. And so he's writing to introduce himself in hopes that one day he will make it there and he'll be able to preach and share, share the gospel there. And he, he had these plans to not just preach in Rome, but then after preaching in Rome, he wanted to go on f- uh, after that to the frontier areas of the day, areas that he called Gaul, modern-day France and Spain. And so he, he, that, that was his plan. Paul loved to go to places where nobody had ever been before, where no one had ever shared Jesus before, so that he could go there and he could be the first one to introduce the story of Jesus to these people. He loved being the first one to do that, so he wanted to be the first one in this area of Europe. And he had a plan. He, he had a plan for how this was going to happen. You may remember back in Acts from last year, he'd been taken up. Uh, he was taking up contributions for the saints because there was a famine in Jerusalem. And so the Jew- Jewish church, it was, it was starving, it needed food, and so Paul had the idea that he could, he could go to local Gentile churches, churches in Corinth and Philippi, and he could, he could 
raise some support and he could bring some food and he could go down to Jerusalem and distribute the food. And so this is what he does. And he's warned, hey, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's not going to end well. We don't think you should go. And Paul, driven by the Spirit, says, no, I know I've got to get to Jerusalem. I know this is what God's called me to do. So he goes to Jerusalem. And he's hoping that as he distributes the food there, that the people in Jerusalem can then fund his ministry to get him to Rome. And then eventually that the people in Rome would enjoy his preaching there and that he could be supported to go onward to, to Gaul, to France and Spain. But it didn't end up that way. As we know, he gets to Jerusalem and he is arrested. He's arrested there in Jerusalem. He was held as a prisoner in Jerusalem, prisoner of the Roman Empire. And so he was moved around from that point. He was moved to Syria. And then from Syria, he was taken to Rome. But he arrived in Rome, not as a preacher, not as an evangelist, but he arrived in Rome as a prisoner. So his preaching, his ministry in Rome will be done from a home that he's confined to in house imprisonment. Um, he came as a prisoner. And we believe, don't know for sure, but believe that Paul probably ended up dying there. Paul had no idea when he was writing to the Romans that all of this was going to happen. He was just introducing himself, hoping that he could end up there. And he says, I'm, I, I want to come, and I want to preach Jesus to you because I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes in Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God's salvation for all who believe. And so he writes that, and then it gets him thinking about why the gospel is so necessary. And so he begins to say, hey, we're all messed up. I mean, you look at it, we're, we're all messed up, and humanity has this spiral of sin, and it's just going from bad to worse to worse, and, and eventually it's so bad, Paul writes, that what happens is people, that culture ends up applauding what is evil and making snide remarks about what is good. This is how corrupt that people have become, that God has given the culture over to this idea of applauding evil and sneering that which is good. So he writes, and then chapter 2, Paul says, well, hey, you think because you're not as bad as all those people, you think because you're not that corrupt that you have it made. He says, you're wrong, because if you don't live by faith... You miss it all. It's always by faith. So even if you're a very religious person, even if you do a lot of good things, even if you're very moral, even if you've got all these actions that you can say, hey, look at what I've done. Don't I deserve something? Haven't I earned something? Paul says, no, you haven't earned anything because we're all in this mess we all have this problem. We all have this sin addiction that we can't shake on our own. And then chapter 3, Paul anticipates the question, well, then what about the Jews? Do, do they have any kind of advantage being Jewish? I mean, it doesn't really seem like they do. And Paul says, oh, no, no, no. The Jews definitely have an advantage because they're lost, but at least they have a map. I mean, at least they have some truth to tell them, to show them that you're lost. You Gentiles, you're lost, and you don't even know it because you don't even have a map. He says, but there is this one truth that is true for everybody, and that is we have all sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. He says that's true of everybody, and that is a chilling place to be, isn't it? To understand that you're all on this boat, and the boat is going down. And so then in chapter 4, Paul writes about salvation history. And he says, you remember, God went to Abraham. And God told Abraham, hey, Abraham, you, you need to get up, you need to pack up, you need to move, you need to go live and work in a place you've never been before, in a place you may not even know about. You, you need to get up, you need to take your family, and you need to go. And Abraham, he gets up, he goes, and, and God says one more thing, Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And Abraham believed God. Abraham took God at his word, and God said, that's faith. That right there is faith. Without any evidence, without anything, Abraham just believed God. And God said, that's faith. And because of that faith, the righteousness of God is going to be credited to you, Abraham. And then chapter 5, Paul tells the Romans how sin came into the world. He said, you know, you know where, why this salvation history is needed anyway? Because sin came into the world through one man named Adam. And because of his sin, now we're all sinners. He said, but righteousness came into the world through one man named Jesus Christ. And so now salvation has come. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And then Romans 6 anticipates the question, well, that's great news. The grace of God that he would die for us while we're sinners. Well, if God would give that kind of grace, can we just keep on sinning? So that his grace can increase? And Paul says, no, by no means. That's crazy talk. That's foolishness. Don't think that way. And then he anticipates another question. But can I sin just once? And Paul gives the same response. No, by no means. That's crazy talk. That's foolishness. Don't think that way. Why? Because... Because sin always leads to death. Because the wages of sin is death. It may not be death of the relationship, but it's death of the fellowship. So no, you can't sin just once. But then he says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you know how that word but works in a conversation? Everything before it, right? I love you, but. Now let me tell you how unlovely you are. Right? And everything that was happened before, you kind of forget about. And everything that comes after, that's what gets the emphasis. Right? So, husbands, wives, parents, <laughs> here's how you critique. You always say, hey, I really need you to make up your bed, but remember, I love you. I really need you to clean up your room, but remember, I love you. Why? Because then the emphasis goes on the love, and that's where God always puts the emphasis. He always puts it on the love, not the behavior. When you put the emphasis on the behavior, when you flip it, and you say, I love you, but remember to do this, what can happen is we begin to think, I wonder if their love may be somewhat conditional on my behavior. However, when you put the emphasis on the love, what happens? 
man, I know they love me. They may take advantage of that love, right? They may say, well, I'm just not going to do it because I know you'll love me anyway. And what does Paul say about that? Crazy talk, foolishness, don't do it. That's taking advantage of the grace now, not of God so much, but of another believer. And that's something else to work on. But you always put the emphasis on the love. Watch how it works in this verse. The wages of sin is death. That's terrible, right? That's awful. That is a mess. That's ugly. What what are you going to do about this? This is death. But see how beautiful that is? The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Forget about everything that came before the but. This is what God now has to offer you. This is good. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. This is where the emphasis goes. This is what we remember. This is what we celebrate. This is what we live in. Paul wants us to remember the gift of God. And then chapter 7, Paul writes, Hey, In this world that we live in now, we end up not doing what we want to do, right? There are things we want to do that we simply do not do. And there are things we don't want to do that for whatever reason, we do. And Paul says, man, this this is just craziness. I feel like there's a war going on within me. And he ends chapter 7 saying, oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who's going to rescue me from this body of sin and death? And then chapter 7 ends, and it leads us to chapter 8, where Paul writes, For I am convinced that nothing will separate me from the love of God. I am convinced that none of that stuff in chapter 7, all those frustrations where I don't live it right and I get it wrong sometimes, that that's not going to separate me from God's love. And so that's what he writes. Remember how God loves you, how, how great and how merciful he is, how whatever is going on in your life, God can find a way in. He's so good that he can work all things for your good and for his glory. And then chapter 9, Paul says, hey, I need to remind you what's going on in Israel. Paul writes, oh, I'd give anything. I'd give up my own salvation if the Jews would just come to know Jesus. It breaks the heart of God and it breaks Paul's heart too. He says, I would give anything. I would do anything, whatever it took. I would, I would do it. Oh, for the Jews, if they would just listen and respond. God made a promise to Abraham though, chapter 9 says, and God is going to keep that promise in a way Paul can't even figure out yet, in a way that we don't even understand. God is going to bring his children home. And then chapter 10, how are they going to know unless somebody tells them? How's somebody going to go and tell them unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who carry the good news, Paul writes. And as he writes that, I think what he's saying is, I know the privilege of taking the gospel to people. I know the privilege and the grace and the just how wonderful it is to be able to take Jesus and to share Jesus and to impact people. Oh, it's so good that Paul would choose me. Of all people, he would choose me, and I get to go and share the good news of the gospel with people. But there's going to be a time 
when God now uses the feet of Gentile people to go to the Jews and to share the gospel with them. Oh, and that's going to be a beautiful thing too. In chapter 11, now we get to where we are, okay, after that introduction. Like a master gardener, the father has walked into his vineyard. He's walked into the olive trees, which was an ancient symbol for Israel. And if he saw a branch that was not fruitful, he broke it off. And where that branch that wasn't fruitful that he broke off, he he did something amazing. He cut a slit into the tree. And in that slit, he grafted us Gentiles in. He, He put us into the tree. So now he says to the Gentile church in Rome, before you get the big head, before you think you're really something, that God has grafted you into his tree. Remember that he broke off the natural branches that weren't bearing fruit. If he would break off the natural branches that weren't bearing fruit, what do you think he'll do to you? If you don't remain faithful, what's he going to do to you? And so he starts talking. And he says, don't you see the Father has found you? These these branches that were discarded, these, these wild branches, he's taken you. And he's grafted you right into the tree. He's tied you around that tree. He's held you firm in that tree. So much so that now as people come and they see, they, it looks like you'd always been there. That They can't tell that you weren't a part of the tree to begin with. That's how good our God is. And he's going to celebrate that everybody can come home. That everybody can be a part of the tree. Because that's the issue here. Right now, (laughs) the Israelites, they think they can be part of the tree some other way. Through good works, through their religiosity, through whatever. But they have denied the only way to be a part of the tree, and that is their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And because of that, they've been cut off. But Paul says God's doing this amazing thing. He's going to use the Gentile church to awaken and to stir up this jealousy, this envy. And sometimes we have a negative connotation with jealousy and envy, and and it can be. But in this text, it's the same word that he he uses um, to to be uh, envious, to be jealous, to have the gifts of the Spirit so that you can be Uh, an an edification to the church. He says he's going to do that. He's going to use the Gentile church to stir it up in the Jews so that they want to be back, so they want to be a part of it. There's a a scene in, in, uh, in Sherlock Holmes where Sherlock Holmes and Watson, they're out in a, in a desert area as they're on one of their missions and they set up camp for the night and so they put their tent up and just, just this desert. And in the middle of the night, Sherlock Holmes kind of elbows Watson, wakes him up, say, Dr. Watson, what do you see? And Dr. Watson kind of rubs his eyes and, and he's kind of looking up out there. He says, well... Kind of groggy. Well, I see, I see a bunch of stars. There's like millions and millions of stars up there. 
Sherlock Holmes says, yeah, okay. What else? Well, with all those millions and millions of stars up there, maybe, maybe that there's, uh, you know, another planet like Earth somewhere. Maybe one of those stars has a planet like ours. Sherlock Holmes says, okay, okay. What else do you see? And Dr. Watson says, well, if there could be another planet like ours somewhere out there, maybe there's another planet out there that has life, kind of, kind of like we do, and, and, and we could find intelligent life somewhere in, else in the galaxy. And Sherlock Holmes says, oh, Watson, you're crazy. Haven't you noticed that our tent is gone? Might have to sink in for a second. But here's the point. Sometimes the truth can be right under or over your nose. And you miss it. And you think you're so smart. This is the Jews. They think they're so smart, so good, so they've got it all together. But they miss the most foundational, obvious truth that Jesus Christ alone is Messiah. That there is no other way to heaven other than Jesus. And they miss this. But Paul says it's going to be a beautiful thing when they finally get it. When this truth that's been so obvious right in front of them, when, they, when God uses the Gentile church to awaken and open their eyes, when they finally get it. And then Paul does this amazing thing at the end of chapter 11. I didn't read it for you, but he can't even stand it. It's just like such good news. He's beside himself. And so Paul does what he often does sometimes. We've even seen it in Ephesians, where he just kind of breaks out into song. And he's just praising how good God is and how awesome God is and how God's been working with the history in the history of Israel and how now he's using the Gentiles and how one day they're all going to be grafted in together and it's going to be even better and we can celebrate even more. And he writes, oh, how deep and rich is the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How remarkable, unknowable his ways. I can't figure this God out, Paul says. It's beyond anything I've ever seen. That God is grabbing up every wild branch and he's grafting them into his family tree. And then he's going to return. He's going to get the natural branches and he's going to get them back in there too. You know, traveled to Sierra Leone several times now, and in going over there, it's really interesting, because I'll be talking to somebody, and they will start saying something like, hey, have you met my brother? Have you met my sister? And on my first trip over there, I was trying to keep all these like familial relationships like straight in my mind. Okay, they're related, they're related, they're related, they're related. And I was like, man, they got a lot of brothers and sisters over here. Like, it's a, it's a big deal. Until somebody explained to me, no, 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 we, we just sit around, we eat together all the time. And so what happens is when someone comes and they just join the table and they just start eating together, if you show up to the table often enough and you're there enough, we just treat you like you're part of the family. And so we start calling your brother, we start calling your sister. And so that's kind of what it's like. They're, they're just part of the family. Everyone's sitting in a circle, the family table, so to speak. And you eat together, and you just start saying, that's my brother, that's my sister, we're family. What Paul is celebrating in Romans 11 is that everyone has a place at the table. Everybody can be grafted in. That, that's the good news. 
And this is the eternal work of being more of a neighbor, of, of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Just this week, I heard stories. heard a story from one lady for World Kindness Day. She went and she just put on the, on the door handles of her neighbors just a, just a bag and a card and just say, hey, I'd love to get to know you. Here's a little bit about me. Heard another story about a couple in our church who went and baked cupcakes and just started passing out cupcakes in their neighborhood. Another story about a couple who said, hey, I'm going to just coach sports teams so I can invest in kids just this week. See, if you ever get the idea that you're the only one trying, that you're the only one trying to live this more of a neighbor and be the type of neighbor that God's called us to be, to be this Christian neighbor, you're not, right? It's, it's happening, but sometimes we need to hear those stories and, and just to be reminded that we're making a difference. We're focused on the right things. How does it happen? You get grafted into the tree. You become a part of the family. You receive the nourishment from being part of the family. And then you can go be sent out alone. Sometimes in the church we get it backwards. We think if I can be okay alone, then I can come and be part of the family. No, no, no. It's the exact opposite. Don't you see in Romans 11? That, that, you, that you receive the nourishment of being hooked into the tree, the sap from the tree. and part of the family tree. That's why this is kind of like a gathering of missionaries. We get together each week and we build one another up and we, we proclaim the scriptures. and We're just reminded, okay, this is how we're to live. This is how we're to act. This is what we're supposed to do. So that we're encouraged to go out and actually live it. So we don't just sit down and listen and say, okay, that was cool. We say, okay, now I'm getting trained up. I'm getting equipped. And now I'm going to go and I'm going to put this stuff into practice. It happens first together. That you're built up together. You're hooked into the tree. You receive the sap, the nourishment from the tree. Then you're sent out to go impact people. See, God grafted us into this tree to bear fruit He's made us part of the family to go tell others that there's room at the table. He's made us ambassadors. He sent us out as light in the darkness. And we get to use whatever means necessary at our disposal. It may mean making cards. Maybe it's baking cupcakes. Maybe it's investing in kids' sports teams. But we don't stop. We keep going because there's always room at the table for more. That there's always room in our family tree for more. In fact, we haven't really lived until we've made a disciple. We haven't really experienced the joy of our salvation until we've done what our salvation equipped us to do. We were saved to go make disciples. If we were saved simply for heaven, then we'd be saved and God would just transport us out of here. But that's not the case. We're saved to make disciples. We haven't really lived until we've done it. You know, this time of the year, there's a lot of eating around the table, isn't there? A lot of families getting together and you know how it is. House is full. You're practically stepping over one another. Maybe you got to eat in shifts. If you've got a big family, it's full of laughter, full of, full of stories, full of shared memories. It's just full. It's the house is full of life and love. And there's such excitement because the house is full. But if someone is missing from the table, 
you know it's not quite complete, don't you? You know there's always room for more. You're still having a good time, but you know. If he were here, if she were home, there would be even more life, even more laughter, even more excitement, because there's room at the table for more. So the father sits at the table, and he looks at the place where the children of Abraham would have sat, and he longs for them to come home, for them to take their seat at the table. And the father sits at the table, and he looks at you, and he says, I'm sending you to your neighbors. I'm sending you to your coworkers. I'm sending you to the people in your sphere, because there's room at the table for more. I'm sending you as a light in the darkness. Don't, don't get distracted by all the temporal stuff of life. Remember the purpose of your salvation. Remember why I saved you to begin with. Go make disciples. You got to go. You got to let your neighbors know that there's a place for them at the table. And you might tell them, and they might think, no, 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 no. You don't don't know me. You you don't know the things I've done, things I've thought, the things I've said. (laughs) You, You really wouldn't want me at the table. You really wouldn't want me in your family tree. Wait, 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 wait. Remember Romans 3? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all start in the same boat. And if we're just paddling, trying to get out of it, it's like paddling on the Titanic. You're you're not going anywhere. It's not going to do a bit of good. In fact, to believe that there's a place at the table for someone, for them to believe that God would want them at, at their table, they got to believe in Jesus. There's no other way. In order for them to believe, sometimes it takes more than just the message. Sometimes they need to know there's room at your table. Sometimes they need a card. They need a cupcake. They need you to invest in their kids. They need you to love them. And then they might believe that there's room at the table, there's room in the family for them. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there's room at the table for us. We thank you that while we were sinners, enemies of you, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And God, we thank you for the beautiful feet of those who shared that message with us. Whether it's faithful moms and dads and grandparents or neighbors or whoever it was who first shared with us the good news of Jesus. God, we thank you for them. May it be said of us that we were faithful with the message that you gave us, that we were good stewards of your gospel that we could go to other people and we could say, come to the table. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.